This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Or something like that. It's called something old, something new. Morgan, what's the rest of it? Something borrowed, something blue. Or Yeah, see? Everybody knows that. I guess it's part of culture now. Something old, something new. I want you to think about this. Those something old, something new, that old was always at some point something new, and that something new will be something old. And that's something that we're going to be looking at in the text of Scripture this morning and how we have this old commandment and this new commandment, but it's not really new. It's not really old. It's always fresh. Oh, my goodness. Seems like we've been watching too much TLC, right? This morning, as we come to our text, would you open your Bibles, if you're willing and able, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We will be reading verses 7 through 11 this morning. 1 John chapter 2, and we will be in verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness blinded us. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear that we need not to go through all these motions to figure out some sort of true meaning, but it is right there on the surface. Father, I pray that you would guide us along by the Holy Spirit, that we would have soft-soiled hearts to receive your implanted word. Would you grant salvation today? Would you grant repentance? Or would you grant sanctification? And in all these things, would Christ be exalted? We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning as we come to verse 7 of 1 John chapter 2, uh, notice that John shifts from moral obligations, okay, moral obligations of the heart, what we believe, those types of things, to moral obligations of the hands, actually living out what we say we believe. To, to put it in a different way, John shifts from morality, what one believes, and the source of those beliefs, to the social or the living out of those beliefs. John begins verse 7 by saying, agape toi. Now, many of you who have been in the church for a while have probably heard the word agape, God's love, love or in general, agape toi. Right here, John says agape toi, and that means my beloved. It is a address, my beloved. See, the fact that John bestows this title upon his listeners is significant can't brush past it. We can't rush past it. 
See, if you remember the previous section of 1 John 2, focused upon the love of God and of God maturing the believer throughout their whole life, that when we joyfully watch over the word of God and delight to live our lives by it, that this is where the love of God applied to our lives is displayed. Remember that John Stock quote from last week, the love of God, that's where it finds itself, right? When we live it out. Thus John calling his audience, his beloved, right? My beloved, Silver City, my beloved is a bridge back to that thought of God's perfecting love. See, John isn't rebuking his audience to make them feel like the scum of the earth, that they're not worth anything. No, of course not. Some of the content can be abrasive of, sure, sure we know that. It's, it confronts us. We go, oh man, that's, I'm not living up to that. This is hard. But John, as a pastor, is concerned for his listeners then and also now in us to truly know Christ and walk in his way. John is telling his audience, yes, you, you beloved, who are being perfected by the love of God, you are the beloved. What does he go on to say? Just my beloved, like he's writing them a big Valentine's Day card with a huge teddy bear that he bought from the Roman Walmarts? No, he goes on to say what? My beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandments, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. Notice immediately another linguistic word bridge to the previous section, the word commandment word commandment. Yet John goes from speaking about keeping God's commandments, mints, uh, commandments with a S plural, to talking about a single commandment, one commandment. Catch that. John's talked about keeping the commandments of God in the previous section. And now we're going to be talking about a new commandment, single. Why is that? Because John is about to recapitulate, he's about to redish out Jesus' teaching on love for neighbor. You see, the entire previous section of 1 John had a focus upon what? The love of God. The love of God. The first table of the Ten Commandments. Even structurally, John's doing something here with the Ten Commandments. We have love for God, and now he shifts in this section of 1 John to love for neighbor. And this is the very teaching of Christ. Here are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 22, verses 38 through 40. This is the great and first commandment, which was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And a second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hinge all the law and all the prophets. Everything in the Bible finds its yes in Jesus who perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor. And this is what it all hinges upon. We talked about love for God last week. Now we're talking about love for neighbor. Jesus himself boils everything down to these two principles right here. So John, in our previous section, again, 
telling us about the love of God. How? By knowing Him and obeying Him via knowing and doing His Word with joyful, reconciled delight, with joy, right? Because of our advocate, our sacrifice, our example, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So it's interesting, as John no doubt had this teaching of Christ in his mind, which he heard with his own ears for the first time. Don't forget that. John heard those very words from Jesus. John is calling us to look at this commandment in a paradoxical way. It's old but new. Old and new. Again, the singular usage is pointing to the fact that everything about proper Christian walking and abiding can be summed up in a single commandment. Single commandment. The commandment that John is about to recapitulate in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, he builds up with typical Johannine suspense in verses 7 and 9. He keeps building it up, building it up, building it up like a good song until it reaches a crescendo. Yet, since we know the background of this letter, we know that John isn't just building things up at random. Like he's just this great author. He wants to have you on the edge of your seat. Oh man, read me more. No, it has a purpose. It has a purpose. Remember, John is combating false teaching within the early church. And based on his statement here, the false teaching he is combating may have something to do with an attitude of private devotion to God without living it out and loving it out for others. These false teachers could have been mocking John and the other apostles saying, you don't need to love other people. You don't need to be in fellowship with other people. You just need to believe. That's it. All you've got to do is believe. Don't need to go through all that other stuff. This is a new weird command that John the apostle and his associates are coming up with. You just, you just need to believe, you know, your own little private faith. Does that sound familiar? Your own little private faith. Don't, don't bring that stuff out in the open. You just believe what you want to believe at your house. Don't bring that into the public square. Sound like what we've seen go on for the past 30 years in the American culture? John tells us, actually, the idea of love for neighbor is not nude, but quite old. So old that it is from the beginning. From the beginning. Now, you may be thinking, does that mean from the beginning of time? Well, yes, of course, we can always reduce things back to that. But the word beginning here that John uh, employs and implements is not that type of beginning. We're not talking about the beginning of reality, like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that type of thing. No, John is using the word beginning here based in the context to talk about the beginning of Christ's ministry, re- referring to Christ's teachings that you heard from the beginning. He's telling his audience, actually, I have not come up with this new command. It's been in circulation since Jesus himself spoke it forth. It's it's old. It's been around. You know this. It should be quite familiar to you by now. John says this old commandment is the word that they, his audience, have heard before, pointing us back to this pregnant idea of the word being 
God's word, his command on full display in Christ Jesus. So don't miss this. Don't miss this. There's a high likelihood that some of the people who were the original recipients of this letter had been around Jesus personally, had been around Jesus personally during his earthly ministry. These individuals who are wavering in their faith or maybe even those very false teachers themselves have likely heard with their own ear holes the very new old commandment from the very lips of Jesus himself. So John's statement here of it's not a new commandment, it's an old one. One of those things is it's kind of like our equivalent of, hey, you know better. It's a little jab in the ribs. You know better than that. Don't do that. And this you-know-better vantage point helps us to see this, that John is playing a little rhetorical game with his opponents while simultaneously edifying his listeners and his readers. Let's look at verse 8 together. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is saying, what I am telling you and about to tell you isn't anything new, but at the same time it is. Building it and drawing us in. And here is where the literary genius of John, guided along by the Holy Spirit, comes to the forefront. John, calling it a new commandment, is not his own wording. He's not making this up. These are the very words of Christ. Hear this from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Verse 34, these are Jesus' words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. John's pointing us back to who? John's not coming up with his own doctrine. He's pointing us back to the very words of Christ. But then John says this new commandment is true in him, that's Christ, and in you, in us, right? Fellowship language, again, bringing us back into this idea of being reconciled unto God and reconciled unto man in Christ, fellowship. John is saying that this new command of Jesus is based in Jesus because he is in us and we in him, the true love and reconciliation of God. We're starting to see all of these things we've talked about thus far in 1 John kind of coming together into this nice recipe. We've got all the ingredients coming together, and he's recapitulating them for us. So we have this concept right here of truth yet again, but in a different way. Again, the same but different, old but new. And it's different because John kind of builds upon this idea of truth here in chapter 2. Here John is calling us to the fact that the new commandment and its very uh, its reliability, the trueness of it, are actualized or brought forth in our lives when we live out what we say we believe. John isn't necessarily saying that the commandment is new with everything that comes before it as old. It's not what he means. This new commandment, old commandment, it's, it's not old, uh, get rid of it, and we got new, it's better. No, that's not what he means. Rather, John is saying it's fresh. You have this fresh commandment. You know it. It's fresh, continually dawning, like God's mercies, new every morning, Lamentations 3, right? Fresh. 
It's like your breath should be after that mint. Think, seriously, think about that analogy. Your mouth didn't change, but there's something new there added, right? It's freshness. It's not a brand new mercy every morning as Lamentations talks about, is it? Like, it's a brand new mercy, right? It's actually the same old mercy on a fresh day being poured out in a refreshing way from the same God who changeth not. Each day that we live out this new commandment of loving one another, we live it out in a fresh and new way, yet it's the same commandment coming from the same old Jesus who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. A fresh commandment, new commandment. Notice that John describes the truth and newness of the commandment using those grand symbolic themes that he talks about throughout his letter of light and dark. Light and dark. John says the new command that those who abide in Christ live out, progressively live out, each day more and more, are just like the dawning of the sun, that there's this dawning of light. For the sun, remember, breaks the horizon. And as it rises higher and higher, the darkness dissipates more and more. John Calvin says this in his commentary about this, and I think it's so spot on. I want you to hear this. Notice that the darkness in this section is past. The present time is here instead of past. For he means that as soon as Christ brings light, we have the full brightness of knowledge. Not that every one of the faithful becomes wise the first day as much as he ought to. For even Paul testifies that he labored to apprehend what he had not apprehended in Philippians 3.12. But that the knowledge of Christ alone is sufficient to dissipate darkness. Each day, daily progress is necessary. And the faith of everyone has its dawn before it reaches noonday. But as God continues the increase of this same doctrine in which he bids us to make advances, the knowledge of the gospel is justly said to be the true light when Christ, the son of righteousness, shines. What does all that mean? This is what it means. The light is already shining, John says, for the light is Christ himself. He has dawned as the son of righteousness. The true reality of what the new commandment entails finds its maturity in Christ, the telos, the end game. Yet given that we are all in different seasons and levels of maturity and walking in the light of Christ, some of us who have had this light shining in our lives longer than others may be brighter than others. It's just like the dawning of the sun. Dear, dear listener, I want to encourage you with something. Listen, listen to me. I know we've got a lot of chatter going on from babies this morning, okay? Parents, this is an opportunity for you all to discipline your kids. Take them out, get them calmed down. Even if that means you have to sit in this room over here with the door cracked and listen from another room. What you're doing is you're teaching them, hey, listen, when we come, when we come into the Lord's house, we listen. And guess what? You might not get it right the first time or the second time or the fourth time or the tenth time, but you doing that faithfully and steadfastly shows that you care about passing that promise on to your kids so that other people can pass those promises on too. It's not about, well, the pastor said everybody's being noisy. No, it's about you intentionally giving your kids the vision and the ability to see that my mommy and daddy or whoever care about what we're learning about. I need everybody to listen to me. If we get frustrated about kids making noises, you've forgotten that you were a kid that made noise too. Let's remember that. 
but let's also take the opportunity to discipline them and discipline ourselves, okay? I want everybody to listen to what I'm about to say. Everybody. There are many, many who want to elevate what I like to call a testimony culture, right? They want you to be able to tell the exact moment like a flashbulb going off that you were saved down to the nanosecond. It was November the 4th, 1984 at 7 o'clock in the morning and 30 seconds. And it was snowing. And I couldn't get home. Like all these things, right? Down to the very minutia. And there are others who hear of this testimony culture and they're driven to utter despair who can't tell you an exact time or day that they were saved. And so they end up thinking, well, maybe I don't know Christ. It drives them into utter ruin. You want me to know you want me to tell you how I know this? Because this was me. I've walked this walk. Right? This is foolish, this elevation of testimony culture. Why? Because the scriptures do not liken the truth of the knowledge of Christ and his salvific love to a flash of lightning and thunder that shakes the whole house of your life, but to a sunrise. That's what John's saying in the text. Are there moments when you have lightning flashes like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus that he blinds you with that thunder and lightning? Of course, but the normative experience is a sunrise. You who fret about your salvation because you can't tell of this earth-shattering thunder, let me encourage you with this analogy, okay? In your home, when you get up at 6 a.m. and it's still dark, you stumble around looking for the light switch. But when the sun comes up, you don't stumble around looking for the switch, do you? It's there. Now, in that same house, can you tell me the exact moment that the sun came up that morning? Can't, can you? You just know that it came up. You don't know the exact moment that it peaked over top the horizon. You may have some trees or other houses that are blocking the sun's view and its light. You can't tell me when it came up. All you do is you look at the windows of your life and you see the light shining, don't you? Right? Look at the windows of your life. See the light shining, Christ himself in your life, and tell me the sun's up. You don't have to tell me the exact moment. If you can, that's fantastic. But rejoice that you see the sun up and can walk around in the light. That's what we should be focusing on. It's not about when the sun came up. It's the fact that the sun has come up. That's why what Garrett prayed this morning is so pertinent to the life of our children. I pray that they never have one of those thunderbolt moments where they're like, oh, but I pray that they never know a time that they did not walk with the Lord, that they never know a time that it was dark, that it was always light in their house. Amen. That's what we should be praying for our children. Look out, dear listener, and rejoice to see the sun rising higher in the sky of your life, bringing more and more light, noonday brightness for you to walk in. Amen. What, what encouragement this is to know that what God has begun in Christ, he will bring to completion. Right? The sun has dawned. He's not going to reverse it and make it go back down. Notice where our text says the darkness is passing away. The darkness, all that is false, all that is sin, all that is evil is ceasing to exist the higher the sun rises into the sky of our lives. Passing away. The sun has dawned, 
and is climbing higher. For that son, Christ himself, has ascended the heavenlies and is seated at the right hand of the Father above all powers, above all principalities, and he will not be defeated. He will not set. He will have an eternal light. His light is true light. It will never be darkened. It will never be faded, no matter what the world may tell you. And guess what? You can't make the sun rise. It's Jesus Christ. It's God. He is sovereign over that. It's not going to set not going to set. Beloved, remember this. Remember this. I know what's going on in so many of your lives. I have the same cable TV and social media as you, and I see the junk and darkness going on in the world. I want you to remember this. The scriptures have told us the son of righteousness has dawned. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But remember this, that even at noonday, there can be an overcast and dark sky. But that does not mean that the sun has stopped shining. Do not mistake the dark clouds of trials and tribulation as the setting of the sun. Don't mistake it. He has dawned. Walk in the light. He is in the light. Thank you. One person is excited and happy that the Lord of glory, the Son of righteousness, has dawned for us to walk in, that we may not stumble in the darkness. I want to encourage you with this too. I know we've got a high liturgy here at Silver City. It's great because we care about order and worship and reverence for God, but you can still say amen. You can still say hallelujah. You can still clap your hands because this is a joyful noise before the Lord. This is not some cold calculated design of come in, sit down, shut up, mausoleum. This is the living God that we're coming into. This is the living God that we come to worship. Bold confidence assurance that we can come into his throne room right now in the middle of a Ramada Inn conference center. You get to go into the heavenlies because of Christ Jesus. And we want to sit around and say, oh, whatever, okay, amen. Amen. The sun of righteousness has dawned. Do you see the world of your, your world, the darkness of your world being lit up in all corners? It must. Repent of your sins and believe. See that he is seated, shining like a light because he is a light. For in the city of God, there is no need for a sun. For God himself is the light. The lamb is a lamp. Revelation 21:23. Yes, amen. Thank you, Lord, that we do not have to walk in darkness anymore. But we have a desire to have joy and excitement that we are not walking in darkness. Amen. This is true. This is the freshness. This is the freshness. We're speaking of true and fresh. What is the true, fresh command that the beloved of God are to have perfect us as we live it out in obedience? Verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother still is still in darkness. Here we have a claim versus an action. Don't miss this. A claim versus an action. Whoever says he's in the light, right? we've got lip service, but acts out in a different way, who hates his brother, is not in fellowship with God or with his brother, but is in darkness. Here are themes of dark and light come back together, and they're expounded upon. Light and dark are not only the truth of God versus the darkness of deceit, but they are also the truth of living out, loving our neighbor versus thinking we don't actually have to. Don't flap your lips about loving your neighbor. Just do it and let your actions speak for themselves. 
God hates empty talk. False lips are an abomination to him. I love my neighbor. Oh, I love him. I'll pray for him. That's the old, that, that's the new perversion now. I'll, I'll pray for you. When you encounter someone, maybe you don't really like them, trying to love them. Maybe it's a, a brother or sister in Christ. You hear about something. You have this little saying you pull out your back, oh, I'll pray for you. But then you actually don't. What you're saying is, I'll go before the Lord for you, and I'll intercede for you just like Jesus, but I'm actually not going to do it. And you know what that is? That's you saying Jesus Christ is faithless and unfaithful to you. Shame on us when we do that. Shame on us when we do that. That is not loving our brother or sister. We are not to flap our lips about loving one another. We're to actually do it. And John expounds upon this in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In verse 10, John continues to unpack the idea like little Russianette dolls, like big mama at mama's house, right? My mom has these little Russianette dolls. You know what those are, right? They're inside one another. He unpacks them. Remember this word abide is John's favorite word. His favorite word, abide. This word is steeped in fellowship language, if you remember. It's pointing us to the idea of remaining in something, eagerly awaiting, eagerly living inside of something. Abide. Think of it like this. Abide in your abode. My faithful abode, my, right? Abide in your abode. When we love our neighbor, we live in the light. We're remaining in it. We walk around in it. It's a beautiful sunshine that warms our affections for God and causes us to see the truth. To love our brother means we are in the light. And when we are in the light, we don't stumble. We don't stumble. So I ask you this morning, as we come to our question for this whole rant of a sermon, here's your question for self-examination. Do you love your neighbor with a Christ-like love? Dot, dot, dot. Really? Do you love your neighbor with a Christ-like love? Really? Thinking back to the previous section, we are keyed into that word love, which shows up here again. And what did that love of the previous section have to do with? It concerned itself with delighting to observe the word of God, which is perfectly exemplified in our example, Jesus Christ himself. And how did Jesus love? How did Jesus perfect, perfectly love with a perfect love, right? He gave himself up as a sacrifice and is an advocate, a helper. The type of love we are to have for our neighbor is the type of love that is sacrificial. They're to help in a time of need, advocate. And furthermore, we are to exemplify this love in a joyful way, a joyful way, not begrudgingly. Not begrudgingly. True love for others is a love of fellowship, even if that person rejects you, hurts you, mocks you. Or is this not, dear believer, you learning the same love that Christ had and continues to have for you, a sinner who has rejected his love at some point? It is. John is calling us to examine whether we live out what we say we believe. He 
He could care less what you claim to do. Care less what you claim to do, but wants to see what you actually so he goes on in verse 11, stating the same position of verses 9 and 10, but now in a negative form. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is why I love John and 1 John. It's so straightforward. It is so practical and applicable, and it just jumps off the page. Here's the big idea this morning. So we're not distracted. Here's the big idea. If you do not love your neighbor, it does not matter how solid you are in your theology, you are actually completely blind to what that theology is calling you to do. If you do not love your neighbor, it doesn't matter what you say you believe. I don't care how many seminary degrees you've got hanging up on your wall. I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible. I don't care how many commentaries you have. If you do not love your neighbor, all of that stuff is for naught, and you believe it in vain. That is what we're called to this morning. If you do not love your neighbor, you are not only in the dark, but the text says you're blind. Right? It's not like the lights are off, you, know, it's, you can kind of see around, you're blind completely. You walk about in a stumbling way as opposed to someone who is in the light who doesn't stumble. And you have no idea where you're going. You can claim you have the superior knowledge of, I've got this great theology. All you want, your gnosis of your Gnosticism, but in actuality, you know nothing. You actually know so much it condemns you. If you do not love your neighbor, you hate them, you defile them. And like the men of Sodom, you are struck with blindness as you wear yourself out groping for the door that you may sin even more. That is what that is. Beloved, agape toy, you all, hear me. Obedience to God's commands, his word, is not merely a negative of going away from sin. Oh, I don't want to do that stuff. It is a positive. It is going towards love. It is going towards love. We omit sin and commit to love. Again, Calvin says this, there is yet nothing but sin if love be absent. There's nothing but sin. Everything is for sin. All your knowledge, all your good works, all of it is for naught and is nothing but putrid stench and sin if there not be love. Our call to love our neighbor is not a second-class command that we think about like the principal used to say. They used to be able to say this back in the day when we were growing up. Kyle, you probably remember this. And remember, treat others the way that you want to be treated. I remember them saying that over the intercom in school. They don't do that now. Not a second class command like, okay, we heard it. It is of the utmost. It is the first class. It is what we must do. So this morning, as we come to a close, we think about how to apply this to our lives. I don't want to have to re-preach it because it's right there in front of us. I mean, we can do word studies about light and darkness, and to, or we can just read the text and go, it, it's very straightforward, isn't it? Very straightforward.
but I'll give you a couple clarifying questions. Okay, pastor, called to love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Dumped you, didn't I? Who's my neighbor? Well, by God's grace, we're not left wondering that either because Jesus was asked that same question in Luke 10. And in Luke 10, Jesus gives us this parable about who is our neighbor. And it's about a, a man who's beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? A holy priest comes along and sees the man in the ditch. Oh, walks right by him. A Levite comes along, sees him in the ditch. Ooh, I'm not going to deal with that. I've got to get to work. But then a Samaritan saw the man and helped him to the point of even paying his medical expenses. Oh, that's so great. The weight of the story actually comes with knowing the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. A Samaritan, in the eyes of a Jew, was a half-breed loser who claimed to know God. They were the rivals of Jews in many ways. And Jesus is saying, even those that we disagree with, love. Love. So do you love your neighbor? You. You. Look around you today. Look around at your wife or your spouse, your husband, mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. Look at them. That's your neighbor. Guys, I know I've been harping a little bit this morning, but I want to do it again. You know these little noisy kids that are blessings from the Lord? Guess who they are? Neighbor. There's no age range of this is when neighborhood starts. They're your neighbor. Love them. Love them. Look around. That's your neighbor. It's your call to love. But remember, the perfecting love of God is making you perfect. Many times, it's not easy to love other people, especially those who are disagreeable or mean or hard to be around. Or maybe you've had a bad week. You just want to be left alone. I get it. I get it. Hard sometimes. It's, it's, honestly, we know this. It's easy to love our families, isn't it? It's easy to love our families. And we're called to love our family. You could say we're called to love our neighbor, our brother, especially our family. But those who are difficult to love, those that we work with, those at the store, those that we don't really know, maybe it's even people we don't have contact with but we know about, like our leaders. To love them. It's a difficult love. You see, we're, we're called to pray that the Lord would sanctify us to love them more, that his perfect love would perfectly work on us, that we would love more like Christ. Part of that sacrifice to love that difficult person is this. It's the sacrifice of yourself, of your comfort, of your wants and desires. It is you dying to your flesh and loving them, even when it's not convenient for you. Even when it's not convenient for you. Yet, loving your neighbor does not mean you give acceptance and tolerance to everything they do. Don't miss this. That is what the world would have you believe love is. What that is, is perversion. It's Romans 1. It's giving acceptance. It's applauding what God says is sin. This is actually hatred. Went wrapped up in a nice suit or a, a pretty red dress. It's pearls and a pig snout. It's perfume on a dead body. When we just tolerate and, and say, oh, love is this, we accept everything. No, no, no. 2 Corinthians 
eleven fourteen, even Satan comes dressed as an angel of light. The wrath of God, hatred of what is against his nature, is not the opposite of love, but is the defender of his love. We are called to hate specific things. We are called to hate uh, sin. We just sang about it in Psalm 11 this morning. Wickedness, that which is against God, if we give approval to it and say, oh, it's all love, then we do not love. That is wicked. If you have a difficult person around in your life, part of loving them is calling them to the standard of God's word because they, made in the image of God, are bound to the same standard whether they acknowledge it or not. That is loving. You telling them they're in sin is loving because you're emulating God who has revealed to you your sin in his word, calling them unto repentance, calling them into the love of God. Okay, I know who my neighbor is. How do I know if I'm loving my neighbor as Christ called me to? Answer comes from the scripture. Again, it's not my formulation. Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6, Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The faith we say we have, the theology, the knowledge of God, it works itself out in us when we love God and we love our neighbor. The faith we have. How do you know you're loving your neighbor? One way you know is if you are displaying the fruit of the Spirit in your life. This isn't self-love. This isn't self-esteem. This isn't you going to Walmart or Barnes & Noble and going to the self-help section. No, that's pride. That is sinful. The fruit of the Spirit are not for you to enjoy, dearly beloved. They're for others to enjoy. The fruit of the Spirit are not for you. They're for other people. The analogy of fruit isn't hard for us to understand, is it? You're a tree. Do you have fruit? Apple tree, orange tree, pear tree, sugar plum tree, whatever. I don't care. You're a tree, egg tree right now. We need a lot of egg trees. Do you bear fruit? Do you have anything on your branches? Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? Notice something. We are called to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Singular, not fruits. Not fruits. A tree doesn't produce eight different types of fruit. It produces one. And notice that the first fruit in that holy crop is what? Love. Love is the seed that ripens the meat, the flesh, or the fruit. Without love, you cannot have joy. Without love, you cannot have peace. Without love, you cannot have patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. When we walk by the Spirit, which means we walk according to the Scriptures that are Holy Spirit breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, then remember this, the perfecting love of God is perfecting us and in so doing, causing us to understand how to perfectly love others. Beloved, Beloved, and you are, if Christ be our example, if in him the love of God is perfectly displayed, then hear this as you consider if you are loving your neighbor. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The love of God is a reconciling love. It is full of grace. It is a love that is full of fellowship. Dear listener, I probe you to think as we close. You who say you know the Lord and love his word, do you love your neighbor? Now ask this question. If there's somebody you need to reconcile with, go do it. Somebody that you need to forgive? Is there somebody that you need to forgive as you've been forgiven so that you can love? Is there someone in your life that you have disagreements with? Disagreements about secondary things, disagreements even theologically? Can you abide in fellowship with them being full of grace? Just like the love of God is for you. You disagree on on end time stuff? Big whoop-de-doo. Have loving debate but love full of grace. That's what I'm talking about. Is there someone even in this very room today that you need to reconcile with and love? Is there somebody you need to go up and say, hey, I'm so sorry, I've thought this, I've said this, I didn't do this, would you forgive me? Reconcile and love. If you have disagreements on big things, like, I don't know, the divinity of Jesus, then we've got problems. But if they're little bitty side things, we're called to love. And even if we have disagreements about big things, we're called to love because Jesus has told us to love our enemies, even those who hate us, even those who hate him. How do we do that? He tells us in Matthew 5, you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son, ha ha, his son, the light rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. How do you love your enemy? You don't give approval to what they do that is sinful. You pray for them. That's loving them. You pray that they would repent, but if not, that the Lord would crush them. This is loving because you are praying for the justice of God to prevail after you have interceded for that person after you have went before them pleading like Moses before Yahweh on the mountain, don't crush them. Don't start a new nation with me. You promise them don't. Intercede first. Dear listener, do you who claim to walk in the light hate your neighbor? Don't. Love them even when it's difficult. I promise you, you're going to mess up in this. You're going to fall short. You're not going to love perfectly but you pray that the perfect love of God would continue to perfect your own love for God and for other people, especially those of the household. Just as Jesus Christ said himself in Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Let us love. Let us do good, expecting nothing in return for everyone. Everyone. Loving with the love of God, doing goodness based on the goodness of God for the sake of love and goodness, not for the sake of anything that we can get from God or anything we can get from somebody else. Love your neighbor. Must. Love of God and hating of your neighbor is to hate God for that neighbor was made in the image of God same God you claim to serve. Walk in the light, my beloved. Stumble not. See how Christ has loved you. Go ye therefore and do likewise. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.